Um, if you will, turn in your Bible. We're going to get to this um, in just a minute. First Corinthians, we're going to get there in just a minute, chapter 1. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a message called direction. So obviously after Christmas was yesterday, and so we kind of finished that up, and we start thinking about the new year, even though we're not quite there yet. But uh, <clears throat> direction is an interesting thing. I, I don't know if you've ever gotten lost. <laughs> I've gotten lost a few times. Um, if you're a guy, thanks, honey. If you're a guy and you get lost, obviously, we, we don't ask for directions because, you know, we're guys, and we'll figure it out. We'll get there, right? So, you know, eventually the sun sets, and then we know where we are. That's how, <laughs> that's how that works. Um, I've gotten lost a couple times. I've shared this numerous times. It's to my own dismay, but um, I keep sharing it and feel like an idiot when I share this, um, relive the whole process. But I was working in, in Texas at one point, and I was coming from Waco, and I had a, an appointment in, um, I think it was in Fort Worth, and then um, there's this interstate, 35 west and 35 east, that splits just outside of Waco and really goes <laughs> along. Dallas and Fort Worth are a long ways apart. You don't realize that until you're out there. And so I, I was thinking about other things, got distracted, and I, I drove all the way to Dallas, and then I got there, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I'm in the wrong spot. And I, I didn't realize it. You know, passed numerous signs, I'm sure, that said Dallas, you know, this far away. Just didn't see it. But I finally got there, and then I had to kind of backtrack and, and spend more resources in gasoline and time. Eventually cost me a lot of money, so that, you know, it, just, it ended up being a distraction in a huge way. And so that's kind of how direction works. Direction's awesome if you're heading in the right direction, but it's not so good if you're heading in the wrong direction. And so part of this is, uh, there's a, a book I read recently. There's a phrase in there that really captured my attention. It says, everyone ends up somewhere in life. And then the catchphrase underneath it was, some people end up somewhere on purpose, <laughs> right? So the idea is everybody's going to get somewhere, right? You're going you're to end up somewhere. You're going you're gonna to live a life, and you're going to die, and, but everybody's going to end up somewhere. And so I want to talk a little bit this morning about the journey that I've been on for a really, really long time. Um, Karen and I came here about 12 years ago now, 12, 12 years ago, January 10th, I think, something like that. It was 12 years ago, so that's a long time, been part of this church. But when we came here, DCF had been on a direction, and Karen and I had been on a direction, and at some point we met, and we had to marry those two directions to make sure, first of all, we shouldn't be here if the directions weren't similar, or at least, you know, it's somewhat the same. And so leadership in the direction of the church, the call that God had on a church, uh, a lot of times when you plant a church, you know, you can start with what God's put in your heart, and then you can gather people around you who have a similar vision, a similar heart. Uh, similar passion, similar direction, and you can go on with that. And that's really nice, but when we came 12 years ago, um, the church had already been on the journey for 25, 30 years, for a long, long time. And so we had to marry that direction and go, okay, where are we going? Where is, is DCF going that we are saying yes and amen to? Where are we going that DCF needs to say yes and amen to as the senior leaders? And so um, we built into the, to the challenge that we weren't going to change any direction for the most part for at least five years because we had no idea. We're, we're like, it takes a lot of time to go, Lord, what is it that you're doing in this church? How are we a part of that? And then how, we, how do we come together until the vision is the same in my heart and in your heart as a church? And so we've been doing that now for 12 years, and, and we've got some direction. I'm going to be talking about where we're going as a church, what God's doing in us, what God's doing in Karen and I personally, and how that relates to where we're headed, what God's doing in our leadership team, where, where God's headed, what God's doing in the culture around us, and all these different things, some of the challenges that arise. But I want to take a little bit of time this morning just talk about my personal journey and how I ended up here and how that translates into what God potentially is doing you, in you. Because, again, my journey and your journey now if you're new to DCF, are, 
are crossing paths. If you're watching online even, our, our journeys are, are, are meeting, and we have to decide, okay, are we, are we coming and headed to the same place? So one of the challenges I had when I first started in ministry was I, I went, when I went to Bible college, I would see things that were in the Bible that weren't in the church, and I would see things in the church that weren't in the Bible, and it drove me absolutely batty. So a lot of the answers to those questions were, well, you know, it's a different culture back then, so that's why we don't do this. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand. Don't greet one another with a holy kiss anymore because the guys get weird about it, especially when you kiss their wives, right? It's not a good idea, right? <laughs> so maybe that was a cultural idea, and I get that. But other things that would drive me crazy were about the things of the Spirit, about how church government was done, about how titles and positions were used. And some of those things just really, really bothered me because, again, I, they, keep, they keep telling me that the source of all this is Scripture, that God wrote it down for us so we don't have to guess that he's revealed himself through his holy word, the Bible. We get that, right? And so, so I begin to pursue that. And so I begin to have this passion, this, this holy frustration, for lack of a better term, because I would see things that, that were really, really challenging. So I was, I've shared this before, but I was in a mission conference, and a friend of mine named Denny, um, he, he introduced me. What he said was, he said, this is my friend Dave, and he has more faith than all of you guys because he actually believes the church can be fixed. And everybody in the room started laughing. And it just, it literally broke my heart. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you, one, that, that my frustration and my passion to see the church made whole was a joke. And it, and it wasn't because of Denny. Denny was just pointing out the obvious that, you know, we're, we're so potentially so far broken. The question really underneath all of that was, can we actually ever get it back, right? Can we ever have what the early church had? Because we read it and we look at it and we long for that and we go, God, what would it be like to be in, in some of those meetings and some of those services, right? On the day of Pentecost when the rushing mighty wind, what would it have been like to hear, you know, the praises of God in so many different languages? What would it have been like the supernatural, you know, with Peter walking on the water next to Jesus? I mean, it's just mind-boggling. But, but the problem isn't that the church can't be fixed. The problem is that the church can be fixed but most of the time, we just don't know how. And so for me, the problem was the church was broken. And so what was the solution? The solution for me was simple, is that we have to become more biblical. We have to go back and say, God, how did you do this? How did you do the gifts of the Holy Spirit? How did you do ministry? How did you do grace? What was your intention from the very beginning all the way through? What was the promises? I mean, it's not just, you know, again, I've shared this before, that the Bible is a huge meta-narrative that, that, that spans the course of all of time as far as we're concerned, right? And, and it's telling a story through that whole process. And it's interesting, like in Judges, it's fascinating how it'll happen. It'll, be, it'll talk about the nations and how these kings are making decisions, these judges are making decisions, and how it's affecting the nations. And the Midianites, this people group, are coming in, they're stealing all this. And then it drops down into the story of a guy named Gideon. I mean, it just literally drops from this level up into the nations, you know, in the abstract, whatever. And it drops down into Gideon. And then it tells Gideon's story. If you go read this in Judges, it'll crack you up because you'll, you'll read this story and you'll go, Gideon, you are an idiot. What are you doing? Why are you keep asking? You know, first you want the fleece to be wet and then the ground around it dry and then you want the ground around it wet and the fleece. I mean, come on. I mean, goodness gracious, the angel of the Lord has visited you and now you're asking him to, you know, perform like a monkey for you. What is going on with you, right? And then you realize, because this is what the Bible is so, it's such a brilliant book, what it does is you begin to see yourself in Gideon. You're like, oh, snap, that's, that's me, right? <laughs> right? And you read it in every single story. And so there's this beautiful 
narrative in the Bible about how mankind was broken. First of all, it starts in the very beginning where God says, you know, the lamb is going to be slain before the foundations of time. I've said that numerous times. What does that mean? So God looks through the future. He's going to make mankind. He's going to make him with free will. That means the only way that he can really love is to be able to, to deny God, right? And so you see that happen in, in, in the Bible, in, in the book of Genesis, and the plan was already in place. Jesus has already agreed, I'm going to go. I'm going to become a man. I'm going to set aside my divinity. I'm still there, but I'm going to set aside me, me using it in the way that I can use it in the Trinity. And I'm going to become a man, and I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to answer the law, the questions of the law. I'm going to live out the law perfectly, and then I'm going to die on a cross, and I'm going to give my goodness and my kindness and everything that is good about me, I'm going to give it to mankind. And I'm going to take away all their sin. I'm going to take, take it upon myself so that what was broken is now whole, and what was separated is now can come together. And so that's that beautiful picture this morning. What, what is worship about? And why I mentioned it in the song, that so often we make it about all the things I have to do to get God to love me. And then you read this massive meta-narrative that God has been loving you since the beginning of time, long before you even showed up and got it right or wrong. It's a beautiful story, right? And so there's a frustration as I see this, and like Jesus came, and he paid the price in the book of Acts, and then the church was born. And you see some of the challenges and some of the problems in the church, right? Because the Bible doesn't hide anything. It just lets it all hang out, right? Which is amazing. Like, people don't understand. Like, you, know, they, they, you see some of this stuff in the Bible, and they're like, That's, that just proves it's not a holy book. Man, that proves to me that it is a holy book because God's not going to withhold anything from us. He's going to tell us the truth. And sometimes that can be brutal. So for me... I, I be, began to believe God, this frustration, this holy frustration to me is a clue now that you would not put all this frustration in me just for me to live in the frustration, right? See, this is a clue to you too. Whatever God's called you into, whatever your life is on about, whatever that looks like. And Oh man, God's called me to be the president. Why does it always have to be I'm going to be the president, right? It's, it doesn't matter what God's called you, what level of influence he's called you to. Everybody is called to some level of influence. And so he's asking, he's speaking, he's pouring into you, he's giving you gifts, he's giving you character, perp- all these different things he's placed inside of you because he has a, a holy plan, and what Jeremiah says, a holy plan for your life. What's it supposed to be doing? Just disconnected and separate and in this culture and separated from the whole meta-narrative? No, you are part of that meta-narrative too. You're part of the story, and it matters what you do. And so I began to get frustrated and saw this, and I began to ask questions, and they would give me pat answers, and it was just make me even more frustrated and angry. And at at some point, I had to move past the anger into, God, if you've called me into this frustration, there's probably something I can do about it, right? So it's not an arrogance that I know things everybody else doesn't know, but it begins to be a mindset of, okay, God, you've put inside of me something that can be the answer to the problem and the challenge that the world is facing, and that's why there's this holy frustration inside of me. That's why I get angry. It's why when I see the church broken, that my heart is broken for the church, right? Because I'd seen it done so wrong, so many ways in all of church history. And and then I start believing, well, who am I, right, to say that we're going to change anything and make it any better, right? Well, who are any of those men and those women in the Bible? They were nobodies too, and they were somebodies at the same time. And what we find is that God puts a holy frustration in all of us to go after some things. And part of your call and your, your, your hunger for what God has done inside of you is connected into this local body, into DCF, because he's called you here, if he's called you here, to be a part of this vision and to bring your strength and bring your life to bear on whatever this is, right? 
And so part of that is my story. And then it connects to your story. We, we love how, you know, Rodney and, and, and Kristen came, showed up not too long. I'm, I'm going to make fun of you. I'm, I'm going to honor you is what I'm going to do. Showed up not too long ago, and Rodney started playing over here, and, you know, and he's playing his little guitar, and he, and he sings a little song. And then next thing you know, he's singing, he's leading a service. And he's, he's led the worship service now for, what, the last eight, nine times, two or three months. And it's been glorious. I've loved it, partly because I didn't have to do it. <laughs> right? But, but it's, it's his A seat, and it's not my A seat. My A seat is this, and leading the church. And so part of when he came, we didn't know what DCF could be like till he came and showed up and did, did, began to do that. And Kristen and the calling on her life and their family. And it's such a joy as they come and be, become a part of who we are. And that's just one amongst many, many couples and singles who've shown up at our church. It's yet to be determined what it means for you to be a part of us, Right? And, and we don't know what that's going to look like until you got here. But now that you're here, we get to discover it together. And it's so much fun, right? And as long as I know who God's called me to be, I don't have to be fearful of, what, of who God has called Rodney to be. And you don't have to be fearful of what other people are doing. You don't have to judge yourself against other people. The Bible says when you do that, you're not wise. But what do you judge yourself against? God, what have you said to me? What am I accountable for? What am I responsible for in this life? Maybe, maybe part of it is I'm supposed to lead my family well. Like, does that matter? I don't know. I think it matters a lot because Abraham doesn't lead his family well. And now in the Middle East, there's warfare all the time because two brothers didn't get along and turned into these factions. It's a long, sordid history that came because a man did not lead his family well and didn't believe God. Then there's another part of him did believe God. <laughs> and the Bible says that it was counted to him to righteousness as righteousness. And then he becomes this beautiful model of what Jesus is going to show us in the new covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, in the new covenant, that we believe that God is good and he came to do something amazing for us and we fall into that place. So what happened was with me is I began to look at the church and I, I, I love history, church history, but history in general. And I start looking into history and this is what I find. There's basically two sides of the church in, in church history. One side began to lead, this is after Jesus, of course, but one side began to lean into heavily the Word of God and wisdom and character and getting those things right and settling things and being solid men and women of God, right? And then at some point, there came along this other group of people who said, man, I love the power and the, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I love the experience, and I love, wow, I can see God move, and it's so amazing, and it's so exciting, and get caught up into that. And so the church began to diverge over the last couple of hundred years, last 500 years or so, to begin to diverge into a character side, and just my definition of a character side and a charismatic side. And not that they didn't have both to some degree, but just two major issues. So here's the problem. The character size emphasizes character over the gifts. A lot of cessationists, a lot of mainline denominations say God can't move by His Spirit anymore. And so this frustrated me because I'm like, I saw God. I was born into the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. And I saw God move in power in the supernatural. And it's undeniable. A hundred times over, I've got a million stories. Try and convince me that God doesn't move today. I will make you cry when we're done. I have so many stories that I can tell you. And experience myself. So there's no doubt in my mind. People come and they're like, God doesn't move like that anymore. No, God doesn't move like that anymore for you. <laughs> Why? Because I don't believe he does. Then you have limited God in your own life. Flip side of that is the charismatic. Oftentimes, the charismatic will be caught up so much into the things of the Spirit that the character that God was trying to build inside of us, the wisdom, the Word of God become, and again, these are extremes, so obviously you're going to know somebody who had both, and that's what I saw. I saw the people who had both the character and this charismatic 
love for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I saw those people move in such power, and it looked more and more like the early church. And that fascinated me. So I began to look into this, and I, I saw as a lot of the character-based people who would not move in the things of the Spirit would have tremendous impact, but only with a few people, Right? Because the, the gifts weren't moving in their life, and so they would hold Bible study, they would do a discipleship, and the, it would move people's character, and they would begin to love Jesus. And then you see the charismatic side, you flip that over, they have a massive impact, grow huge churches, I mean, revivals in Brazil and all over, the, all over Africa and all these different places from the Pentecostal movement. Right now, they say one in four Christians are Pentecostals on the planet. And that's within the last hundred or so years that that Pentecostal movement began to come back into the church. The gifts and the charismatic movement began to happen in the church, right? And so I see that and I see massive impact and incredible things. God would do incredible supernatural things. And then there would be character flaws sometimes in the leaders because they had not built wisdom with wisdom in the word of God. And they had not built with government around them that created a safe space for them. And they end up falling. And all of the people who were deeply impacted by the charisma of those pastors and those leaders in the church would fall away, or at least, if nothing else, doubt and wonder, was any of it real? And that bothered me. And I'm like, Lord, there's got to be an answer. And so I come across this passage in 1 Corinthians. I ask you to go here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 5 through 7. So Paul's writing to a church, a fledgling church, if you will, a new kind of church, and they're stepping out in the gifts of the Spirit. He comes and he brings, and we're going to get to the story about the church but he, he brings the power of God into their midst and they love the move of God and they're so excited, but they're not very deeply discipled, if, as it were. And so he writes to them, he says, for in him, he's talking about Jesus because he's trying to disciple them through this letter. He says, for in him, you have been enriched in every way. In Jesus, he's the focus. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, verse six says, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. In other words, he showed you that what we were telling you was true. It wasn't just words. He came and he did something. And he said that this, verse seven, therefore, he said, you as a church, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Man, I would love that to be said about DCF. You guys don't, there's not a single spiritual gift that doesn't operate in your midst when you're in services on Sunday morning, when you're at a, at, a, at a small group or a Bible study. You don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. In other words, we're part of this story. At some point, Jesus is going to be revealed in a way that's going to make all, make, it's all going to make sense. But in the meantime, he's opening himself up and he's, he's living his story through you and I. But here's the interesting thing about those guys. They were unruly. And they were misrepresenting God's gifts. They were getting drunk during communion. <laughs> One point, a guy's sleeping with his, his mama, right? Whether it's his stepmom or his real mom, don't know. But it's like, you think that's a new thing in pornography day, today? The stepmom thing? That was happening years and years ago. Here's the kicker. It was happening in the church. And not one single time did Paul disown these guys and say, uh, Apollos started that church. I, I had nothing to do with that. That <laughs> was not on me, right? Wouldn't you want to say that? But he never did that. They were impacting tons of people until their immaturity was discovered, and then people would doubt, and they would wonder, is any of this even of God? And so you've seen this happen so often. So the problem is the church is broken. What was the solution? I recognize we have to become more biblical. So a little bit further down in this story, 1 Corinthians 1.22, it says, Jews demand, a sign, demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. It goes on, it says, but we preach Christ crucified. 
He, he said at one point, I come and I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Who He was and what He did on your behalf. We just did a series on that recently on, the, on the, what the cross means to us. He goes on, he says, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But listen, but to those whom God has called. He said, this makes no sense until you have been called by God and you recognize that you've become now part of the story. Both Jews and Greeks. This is what he says, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So here's the thing. What was happening in the Corinthian church is they were leaning into the power of God, and they weren't walking in the wisdom of God. And that's what I discovered. When I read that passage, I was, I was like, wait a second. So the plan of the enemy for the last several hundred years is to try to separate the church into two factions, one that leans into the power of God and one that leads into the wisdom of God. And the enemy's plan in the modern church is, I want you to pick just one. Why? Why would the enemy do that? Because it's effective. You've got people who walk in the power of God without the wisdom of God, and again, they do a great job until things go sour and it falls apart, and many of you guys have been hurt by the church. Why? What happened? Something happened in the character of the leadership and the people who called themselves disciples of Jesus who did not look like Jesus. Gandhi said, I love your Christ, I don't so much love your Christians because they don't look anything like their Christ. And that's, that's the challenge. So the book of Hebrews is this beautiful, beautiful, brilliant book. Some people think it was written by Paul, some by Apollos or Barnabas. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, what he does, he talks to the Hebrews and he says, Jesus is better than. And he starts going through a list. The prophets, the angels, the prophet and lawgiver Moses. He said, Jesus is better than Moses. Do you know what that did to religious people? That set them on edge and they were angry. He said Jesus is better than the Sabbath. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the old covenant because he's the mediator of the new covenant. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices because he is a better sacrifice because he sacrificed once for all, for all time. And when we get this, we understand this, we see there's a picture of who Jesus is and his wisdom and his power and he's better than all of that. And so so what happens is we get focused on one aspect of Jesus. Look at the stories. Look at what he said in red. And I read everything in red. And I read Matthew chapter 5 and 6. And he makes a change from talking about the Beatitudes and the promises of the kingdom coming. And he moves in and he begins to discuss the law. And he says things like, if your eye is, you know, causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And he goes in and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, then you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. And so we're like, wow, I read that stuff, and then I begin to say, okay, God, what does that mean? I, I, I want to do what you said, and I don't realize, I don't have the wisdom of God working through me to understand that Jesus was talking to people who were under the law. Many places in Hebrews, they're talking to people under the law. But if you don't know that and you lean only into the Word of God, we see this all the time. We call it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, the Holy Trinity. People talk about the Holy Spirit like he's some crazy uncle that we have to keep into the, in the basement and we only let him out at, at holidays. Some of you might have experienced that over the last couple of weeks, right? But what if we trusted that the Holy Spirit was actually God? What if we trusted that when he comes and he moves, he's going to tell us everything about Jesus? What if we said, God, I want not part of what you're doing. I want all of what you're doing. I want it all. I want everything you have. The focus is on Jesus. This is Ephesians 4.15. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. He's challenging us to stay, take a step in wisdom and power. And he says, you will grow to become in every respect, not just one area, not just the wisdom of God, not just the power of God, 
But both of those arenas become in every respect the mature body. The world is longing for a mature body of Christ. Longing for it. Longing for a mature body of Christ. And then it goes on to say in verse 16, from him. This was the thing. We get past it. We get into our own wisdom or we get into trying. We can't muster our own power so we think, well, maybe power doesn't exist at, at all. Maybe it ceased. And so I begin to create doctrine based on my experience rather than live the doctrine that's been given to me by revelation in Scripture. So I find Scriptures that create a narrative and tell me that it's okay not to seek the power of God. Or if I'm flipping the, 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 the script and I'm on the other side of it, that it's okay to not worry about the wisdom and character of God because really it's all about God's supernatural power and it's, it's no big deal, any of that stuff anyway. And it's not true. It goes on. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And here's the thing. Everybody has gifts. We talked about this. And we're going to go into this when we talk about grace teams. We talk about the three different areas of the giftings of, this, of, of God in our lives. Jesus giving us the five-fold ministry gifts. The Father giving grace gifts, um, like giving and like, uh, like uh, hospitality and all these different ones. And then, and then the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power gifts that come, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The supernatural, the, the, the explosive power, dunamis, the Bible calls it in Greek, that like dynamite being thrown into a river and it breaks apart whatever is holding the river back. I'm going to talk more about that as we go forward. But why is it important? Why is this so important? Why does this matter? Because, again, is it too far gone? Is the church lost? Is there really no hope? I mean, we've been going after this for 12 years now, and right about the time we get ready to grow and have more impact, it seems like the enemy comes in like a flood, right? COVID comes in, and not just us knocks our feet out from under us, but every church in America, every church in the world. They say one to two churches in America and the rest of the world died during COVID. It's a struggle. There was a massive attack on the whole planet, right? comes ultimately from sin. We know that. Where viruses come from. People are like, I don't understand. It's, it's clear in the biblical worldview. It comes from the fall. It comes from the brokenness. That's where sin, that's where all that stuff comes. But let me say, say this about Jesus. When Jesus saw the brokenness of humanity, he waded in to humanity. When he saw a leper, he didn't back away saying the leper is going to get on him, right? Leprosy is going to get on him. He leaned in and he put his hands and touched unclean things, right? And he said, when I do this, what's in me is going to get on them. You know, the world is waiting for a vibrant, powerful church. It's waiting for a church who won't back down, but also who stands up in love in kindness, in the goodness of God, that their character matches, that marriages are staying together, that kids are looking like they're supposed to look instead of looking like the world, right? Moving into a place where we begin to see the power of God moving through our lives, so we're praying for the sick, people who do have sickness, and rather than the sickness get on humanity, Jesus comes into the sickness and the sickness is eradicated. And we've seen that, and we want to see more of it. So why is it important? Why is it important that we go after this now? Because the church is anemic. The weak, anemic church is a laughingstock of the world. Has no power, has no wisdom in their eyes, right? It, it, it makes no difference. Why? Because it's not, it's not founded in an impact that changes their mind supernaturally. It's like it's just another argument. Your argument is just as good as Buddhism or any other argument. Paul said, I didn't come with a good argument. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit of God 
and of power. We're going to get to that. So I'm going to tell you a dream I had in Tyler, Texas. We were planting a church there, part of a church plant, and there's a big hospital there. And uh, I had this dream where I was in the waiting room of the hospital, and it was full of people and all kinds of sickness and disease, and, and had, some of them had been stabbed or shot. I mean, literally knives hanging out of bodies in, in, this, in this dream. And I was distraught, and I'm looking at it, and I look over to where... You know, the administration is supposed to be, and the doctors and the nurses are supposed to be back there treating patients, and there's nobody there. And I mean, I thought, that's weird. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And I looked back into the crowd of the people who were sick and hurting, and I saw people who, some of the people who had knives and some of the people who were sick with diseases were the doctors and the nurses and the administrative staff. God spoke to me and said, this is my church. This is my church. That... The leaders oftentimes are just as sick and broken as the people they're trying to help. So who's helping? And the answer is nobody. Nobody's helping. So everybody's sick and everybody's hurting. And that's true, of course, to some degree, all of us. No matter who you are as a, as a believer or as a leader, no matter how mature you get, you're never at that place where you're so amazing that, you, that the enemy can't somehow trick you. That's why it's so important to be in community, why it's so important to humble ourselves and be listening for what the Lord is saying, constantly be trembling at his word. Lord, what are you saying into my life? What are you saying to my family? I want to get this right because it matters. It's not just what I want to do. I'm no lo- it's no longer the life I live, but the life I live now is living in Jesus. That's what Scripture says. And so this dream I had, it told me that what, What's going to have to happen is the church, the leadership of the church is going to have to become healthy before the church ever becomes healthy. So I began to study church government. I just recognized that God called me to understand church government. Now, it's not some special revelation. I wish it were because I could make a bunch of money on YouTube with it, right? It's not. It's not at all. It's exactly what the Bible speaks to about how church government, how leadership is supposed to work. It's about authority and how authority is supposed to work. And when you understand it, it makes perfect sense. For example, Paul said to one church, he wrote to them, he said, God has given me authority to build you up, never to tear you down. So if you find a church leadership structure or any authority in the government or in the home or any other place where authority exists because those are levels of authority that God has ordained. Any place you find where it's tearing people down and not lifting them up, it is not godly authority. And it needs to be, we need to stand against it. We need to push back until it's done away with, until we replace that government with godly humility, godly kindness, godly power, and godly wisdom, and we step in and we make a difference in the places where God has called authority to make a difference. So, Jesus demonstrates God's power in this. The disciples became like Jesus, both in his character and his competence. It's two areas, and that goes back to the same thing, in wisdom and in power, right? Ephesians 2, 19 says it this way. Consequently, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In other words, the focus has to always come back to Jesus. What did Jesus do? How did he do it? Jesus 
constantly said, I don't do anything unless I see my father do it or I hear my father say it. He was in constant connection, in constant contact with the father. He set time aside so he could hear what the voice of his father was saying. In the moments of ministry to people, he would wait on God to talk to him about what to say and what to do. He wouldn't just use wisdom. He wouldn't just use earthly wisdom. He had plenty of that. But he would wait. He comes to a woman at a well, and she's, got, she's had five husbands, right? And the one she's got now, not her husband. And he tells her this. Why? Because it's the linchpin on what everything she's built, the enemy has built her life around that's falling apart all around her. And Jesus just reaches in like a Jenga block and yanks it out. And it all comes tumbling down. She has a radical encounter with the Lord. She goes out, and she becomes a testimony to everybody around her. And she, this is what she says. She said, come here, a man. Come look at this man. Come see this man who told me everything about me. And the implication in that story is, because of who she is, because of the disconnect between men and women in that day, and they weren't supposed to talk to him, and various other things, culture included, the implication is, come see a man, hear a man, who told me everything, who knows everything about me, and still loves me. That was her testimony. And it was different. So power, wisdom happening in Jesus. So why now? Every generation is going to make this better, or it's going to make it worse. You and I, we have an obligation to our generation. We have an obligation. We owe, the Bible says, we owe one another a debt of love. Part of that love is to be like Jesus, to lay my life down for someone else, right? We know that. So we're choosing, we are choosing to make it better. Not just for our generation, but for the generation that comes. Let me read this. This is Judges 2.10. This is probably one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. This is what it says. After that whole generation had been gathered to the ancestors, in other words, they died, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And listen to this key word, then. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Our generation, we owe them a debt of love. And part of that debt of love is, I wasn't called to serve myself. I was called to serve the Lord. And Jesus showed us what that looked like. He, he knelt down in front of his disciples and he washed their feet. And Peter said, that's not how it works. Titles and positions, Lord, you're greater, I'm lesser. That's not how it works, so you can't wash my feet. And Jesus, in some ways, was so firm with him that it was almost looked like anger. And he said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can be no part of me. See, that flips the script. That comes back with... All of the power of the universe, all of the righteousness to judge Peter, all of the righteousness to judge the woman at the well, and everybody he came across was present inside of him, and instead of judgment, he gave mercy. All the power to destroy. At one point, he's going to the cross, and, and, he, and he recounts that all of the angels are gathered at the precipice of heaven waiting for his command, that if he had called on them, myriads of angels, millions upon billions, uncountable, the Bible says, would have come to his aid. One angel would go through the land with a sword and slay everybody that they saw. Imagine millions of angels attacking the planet. There would have been nothing left. It would have been a wasteland. And Jesus would have been 100% right. You and I would have deserved the judgment that would have come. But he withheld it. 
His authority made it available, and he withheld it, and he used his authority to build up and not tear down. Where do you think Paul learned it from, right? So there's this beautiful picture where, where Jesus comes in, and he pours himself out for a generation, and he looks down at these soldiers who were part of his crucifixion, and he says about them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so there's this juxtaposition that you and I have been called to even though God has given us wisdom and insight, and so often we look at the world and we're angry. I hear this all the time. I do it myself, especially with the political agenda that's going on right now. Transgender, homosexuality, the celebration of those areas, celebration of foolishness and lies becoming the truth and truth becoming lies. And we look at that and we get angry, and all of us, it's a natural thing. We want to just withdraw and go, I want to withdraw myself from this. I don't want to be a part of it. And Jesus said, that's not how I do it. He waded right into the midst of one of the greatest political dramas that the world had ever seen when Rome had taken over the Middle East. He walked into it. We just celebrated it. He names, <clears throat> he names Caesar. He names the political leaders of the day. And they're all so great and awesome and so powerful. He names the people. If anybody was going to judge, because that's the Messiah they were looking for, was a Messiah that was going to come and destroy the entire Roman nation, that he was going to rise up and be a king. And that is who he is, and he is going to do that. But he came first. And foremost, as a humble servant, he came to walk into humanity and be the life that humanity needed. He came with mercy and not judgment. And you and I get angry because we're frustrated that things should be right and they're not right. And the answer isn't to write off these people and call fire down from heaven, which is what the disciples wanted to do. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what spirit you're of. Because that's not me. It's not what I'm doing. So he comes and he says, I have a responsibility, and he tells the disciples, you have a responsibility. And we sat on a boat in, in the Sea of Galilee, and the shore was there where Jesus would have met with those disciples right before they went off into the world, before he went up into heaven. And he's turning everything over to guys he spent three years with. <laughs> that scares me. I read about Peter, and I'm like, oh, are, are you serious? You're going to let that guy lead, right? Are you, are you sure? And Jesus is like, I believe in you. And he becomes one of the greatest apostles, the greatest disciples. These guys go, all of them except John, laid their life down to preach the gospel into places that did not want to hear the gospel. Right? John was the only one, they, but they tried. They boiled him in oil, according to church history, and he wouldn't die. <laughs> right? I just want to be John. I'm like, nope, I'm not done yet. i got a few more things to say. So you can boil me in oil if you want, but I'm not finished. And that's the whole point. Right? Jesus said, nobody takes my life away. I give it up freely. I choose my destiny. You don't get to choose it for me. So when you feel out of control, when you feel like things are as bad as they're going to get, remember that this is the world that Jesus put you into. And in that is a clue. That if Jesus put you into this place for such a time as this, then what you have is necessary for what Jesus is doing in the earth right here in Dothan, Alabama. Amen? So, let me just finish up with a picture. This is, second, this is 1 Corinthians 2. It's just a little bit further down in the story. This is Paul talking to these people. He says, I, brethren, when I came to you, because again, he was a missionary. He walked in this door and he started ministering to him. He said, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Listen to that again. It's important. Don't, don't gloss it over. I did not come with excellence of speech 
or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. There's a reason for that, and we're going to get to it in just a second. Verse 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The identity of who Jesus was, the life He lived, and what the crucifixion was all about. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Here's one of the most powerful orators that ever lived, one of the, one of the geniuses of, of literature. When you study the Bible's literature, that, that's what they'll say about Paul. Some of his sermons were the most, Romans was one of the most brilliant books ever written, according to historians. He goes on, he says, I was with you in fear, weakness, fear, much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what's it going to take to change this world? What's it going to take to make a difference? What's it going to take? Is it going to take a better argument? Do you think a better argument is going to do any good? Nothing wrong with good arguments. But there's something about, listen, something about the supernatural that breaks it wide open. And there's a whole aspect of the church that the enemy has duped into believing that that is no longer available. That the power of Christ, not just the wisdom, but the power of Christ is no longer available to humanity. What a travesty. What foolishness. How have we been, like the Galatians, bewitched into believing that God no longer moves through His power? A couple reasons why this is important. One way that that happens is the enemy comes and says, you don't deserve to move in the supernatural. Right? Because if you're going to move in the supernatural, you're representing God and you need to be perfect. Were any of the disciples perfect? Of course not. There is one perfect example. Everybody else is a living one. One perfect example. The rest of us are just living ones. So he comes and he, he says, I'm, I didn't come with wisdom in, in, in my speech. I came with a demonstration of power. Now I'm going to finish with this, Acts 17, 32. This is the story of Paul's journey. He shows up in Acts about chapter 13, holding um, the, the coats of the people who are stoning Stephen. You see that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he has, he has aspirations to the probably to become the chief priest. He's per, his resume is perfect. He has the wisdom of God. He has all of history and, and Israeli history behind him. His tribe, everything about him is perfect. His resume is perfect. Yet he's missing something. And he's on this journey, and he gets, he gets changed, and he begins to go and preach. He goes away into the desert. He comes back, and he has conversations with the disciples, and he begins to believe that he has a message to the Gentiles that the gospel is not just to the Jews, and he begins to go out. And then he comes in in the story, and this is where we pick it up. Um, verse 32, Acts 17. It says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. So he had come in, and he was preaching at the Areopagus. I, I remember studying this in Bible college, and they said outside of the Sermon on the Mount, this is the best sermon that is in the entire Bible. It's the most brilliant, and we studied it. We picked it apart. We went into the words, original language, all this stuff, and it is amazing. It's an incredible, incredible, incredible sermon, and it was almost completely ineffective. Go back and you study it. Listen to what he says. He's here. He's preaching the gospel. This is part of his journey. He, people don't think Paul was learning, but he was. He was growing in his faith, just like the Bible says you and I are growing in our faith, stepping into what God meant for us to be. And sometimes it's moving and, and feeling around in the dark, but eventually as we have faith and we move forward, we discover what it is that God's doing in us and through us. And what he discovered was he was coming with wisdom and he was coming with words, and they weren't as effective as he thought they were going to be. 
And he thought, I'm talking to the Greeks. They're going to get this. Wisdom is what they do. They're going to get this. And it turns out they, they just wanted any other argument. They were constantly looking for another guy with another way to say another thing. And if that's not our world today, I don't know what is. He goes on, he says, And when they heard of the res- resurrection of the dead, in other words, Paul preaches this amazing message, and he gets to the supernatural, and he said, Jesus was dead, and now he is alive. Right? And he sits and he judges the nations. He is the one that God is using to judge. He tells them the whole story. He says, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, this is what the people did. Some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. I said last week, the angel comes. The star leads the the wise men to the baby Jesus, right? By this time, he's a year to two years old. And Herod calls the people of Israel I'm the chief priest together, and he says, tell me where this king, this new king is going to be born because I want to I worship him. <laughs> it's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill him. And they knew. They said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And I said this last week. Bethlehem was six miles away from Jerusalem. Six miles. The whole of Jerusalem, it said, was, was upended. They were, they, were, they were troubled. But not a single one of them went to find out whether it was true. Same thing with these guys. He talks about a man rising from the dead. Some people said, that's stupid, and they mock him. The others said, oh, that's, that's fascinating. We'll hear you again at some point. I'd love to hear your take on that, right? They were just unwise. Verse 33 says this. So Paul departed from among them. However, this is the fruit of that encounter. Some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And listen to verse 1 of chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth. And that's when he shows up and he says, And when I came to you, I didn't come with wisdom. I didn't come with speech. Those things are great. Nothing wrong with it. Teaching's helpful. But that's not what I came with. I came with a demonstration of God's power. Why? Because he'd just come from this place, and he preached one of the most amazing messages that had ever been preached, and it was almost wholly ineffective. So he comes, and he stirs up in Corinth this powerful move of God where people, there's not a single gift that's missing in the entire church, and yet they got it all wrong. And he said, look, you've born out of the power of God. I'm going to pour into you the wisdom of God. I know people who are born out of the wisdom of God. And God pours into them the power of God. Let me just finish by saying this. We have a journey that God's called us to as a church. If you ask us, how do you fit into, you know, where do you put yourself in the yellow pages for you young people, you know, online? <laughs> how do you fit, what's the category you fit in as a church? We don't know. We don't know how to fit because we don't fit. Are we charismatic? Yeah, we love the things of the Spirit. Are we a word church? Absolutely. We love the Word of God and we teach are you a grace church? Absolutely. Man, we teach the gospel of grace, and, and we're, we're telling you that if you don't get that, you're going to get caught up into some all kinds of wrong thinking. Are you a power church? Absolutely, and we want to see more. So I want to end with this. There's a journey and a vision and a direction that God's called you to, and every single one of you are going to end up somewhere. Some of you guys are going to end up there on purpose, but it's up to you to make the decision, just like Paul's journey. 
he learns and he grows over this process. And he goes, I just poured my life out in this work in, in, a, in, in this city and not a single thing happened. And he, I promise you, he sat somewhere with a scroll and a pen or whatever they do back then. And he said, pros and cons. What went wrong? Let's have some discussion. You know, let's, let's do some, let's figure this out. And he and his team said, you know what I think it was? I think that we came with a really good argument. And what we, what we really ought to come with is the demonstration of the power of God. So they said, you know what? Let's go to Corinth and let's try that. Let's try that. So as we move forward, I think we've established <clears throat> as a church that we love the Word of God, that we want foundation. As leaders, we're all leaning into, we want to get this right. We want to love people well. We have a, a church, thank God, that almost no gossip occurs in. You know why? Because the culture in our church is, if you start gossiping, people go, hey, that's not grace, man. That's not how you talk about people. Let's push back on that. Hey, you you want to talk to them about that. Here's what you do. Don't, if you want to get perspective, that's fine. But at some point, you need to go sit down and talk to them. You know why? Because the Bible says if you have something against your brother, you go to your brother. The Bible says if your brother has something against you, you go to your brother. There is never a case where you don't go to your brother, Right? That's, that's, that's the Bible 101 at the same time. What are we after in this? That those foundations are sure. That when God moves in power, that what we respond to, the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is with a mature response of the Spirit. In other words, we're not going to be just weird for weird's sake. We're going to lean into the power of God. We're going to ask God, will you do great things among us? Will you raise people from the dead in our midst? Is that going to happen today or tomorrow? I don't know. But I do know this. You can't raise people from the dead unless somebody dies. You can't heal somebody unless somebody's sick. So everything that we look at and go, man, I wish that weren't so. Jesus has come and somewhere deep down inside of us, he's saying to us, you are the answer to the problem this world has. I am in you and I am the answer to the problems this world has. And if the things that break the heart of God break your heart, those things are going to frustrate you. But you move past the anger of the frustration into, God, how am I now the answer to these problems? My personality, my gifts, my vision, my strength. How do I bring this to a local church? How do I bring this in my family? How to bring this into my workplace? So I want to challenge you with this. As we move forward, let, if you need to grow in the wisdom of God, man, get into the Bible. Come on. It's not that hard. There's a billion apps. You can set a, a reminder on your phone. Read every single day. Spend five minutes. If you just spent five minutes a day, you imagine how much you'll grow in this next year. Just five minutes a day. Get into the Word of God. Stop making excuses. It's too hard. Then just read it until it's not hard, right? What about the power of God? I don't know about you, but I'm praying. And I'm saying, God, as we go into this new year, I would love, spe specifically for me, God, that you would grow me in areas of words of knowledge. And let me just tell you how that works. And I want to ask you to do the same thing. Pick something, a gift, a strength, healing, whatever it is. God, help me become better at this so I can have greater impact. But let me tell you what happens when you ask that. Because God's asking you to ask this. He's wanting it to be, be scary. Because he's a great big God. That means there are going to be times like Paul, you're going to miss it. I had a friend in California, prayed for a guy. He said, I feel like God wants to heal your leg. And he starts praying for him. He says, what's wrong with it? He said, well, it's wooden. So <laughs> he's like, okay, I'm, I missed that. And then the question was, well, God, did you want to grow a new leg? I don't think I have faith for that. I mean, you know, we, we, we do our best. We sometimes feel around in the dark. But here's what I know, that God has put the frustration in you to move past the anger because at some point 
you are going to pray for somebody, and they're going to say, I, you know, that sore throat I had, I don't have it anymore. You know, that shoulder problem that Dave and uh, <laughs> the person on the front row, I can't remember your name. She's one of our elders. Um, that <laughs> so that pain, Dave, you know, it's funny you should say that because um, I, I've been hurting in my arm, and maybe that's God saying he wants to heal yours. And so I need you. I need you desperately. Because if I could heal my own arm by just doing it, I would have done it a long, long time ago, I promise you. Right? There's so many things I don't understand. But I understand enough to know that if I am willing to take a risk into God, He, at some point, will answer it. So I'm asking you as we go into this new year, this direction, pick one. Pick a direction. Wisdom, power, whatever you need to grow in, lean into it. Pick something. Be strong and go, Lord, I want to grow in this, and I want to have real, real impact like you did in in the Corinthian church. So I want you to stand with me as we pray. As we go into this new year, grace teams, small groups, um, we're rebuilding foundations of mission. Our passion is to grow as a church and have the impact that God designed us to have. The only way for us to do that is for all of us to lean in with our gifts and our strengths and our wisdom and our passion and connect and decide, has God called you to this vision? This is the vision that we proclaim. This is where we're going. It's going to be grace-based. We're going to transform lives by encountering grace and the Spirit of God. So we're going to see both God's wisdom and His power operate amongst us. If that's something you're excited about, pray and ask God. Really, really commit. Become all in. Put all your chips in and go, there's a chance I might get hurt. Yes, but there's a chance that you might grow and become fruitful in everything that God's called you to do. That you will have relationships that are deeply from the heart, which the Bible says we're supposed to have. If you can just take the risk this morning, would you take the risk? So Jesus, you took the risk for us, Lord. You lean into a long, long, long story. Lord, and it was worth every bit of it, every single bit of it, Lord. You said for the, for the love, for the joy that was set before you, Lord, on the other side of the cross, you didn't love the cross. You didn't want the cross. As a matter of fact, three times you said, Lord, is there, Father, is there any other way? And every time it came back, you knew the answer to that, but your human body knew it was going to suffer. But, Lord, you said for the joy set before me, you endured the cross. You got on the other side of it, Lord, and because of that, I came to know you, and I, ha- I have life where there was death inside. So, Lord, I want to commit anew and afresh. And, Lord, I want to lean in with the gifts and the power of God, the gifts of the Spirit and the power of God. I want to grow and learn and understand it if I don't, and, and step out in faith and take more chances and take more risks, Lord, even potentially looking like a fool for your sake, Lord, to see at some point breakthrough in people's lives. Lord, I want to grow in the wisdom. I want to understand Scripture. I want to recognize that it's a big narrative, and it takes me leaning all the way in, and it's going to take my whole lifetime to gather around and understand more and more of who you are and how you operate. But, Lord, it's my call. It's your call on my life to do just that, and you have empowered me to do it by grace. And so, Lord, we say yes to this next year and the calling you have on us, Lord, the challenges that this culture and this community and the times have given us. Lord, you have called us for such a time as this. It's not an accident, Lord, that we are the ones living in this time. Use us powerfully, Lord, as we submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Uh, If you need prayer, obviously we'd love to pray for you this morning. If you're online, just go online, dothancf.com, and connect with us. We'd love to pray for you as well. Uh, There'll be people up here from our team to pray for you. If you don't need prayer, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.